Well, this morning, as we, uh, we kind of celebrate Mother's Day together, um, we thought we'd take a moment and just deviate from our, our study in 1 Samuel. And Mother's Day is a time to celebrate uh, motherhood, obviously, um, but it's really to celebrate the deep and sacrificial love that mothers display towards their families. And those families can be biological, they can be adopted, or they can be spiritual families. And so uh, the role of mom, the nurturing role of mom, is that one of celebration that we're, we're sharing in today. In fact, the modern Mother's Day in the United States originated out of the desire of Ann Jarvis in 1868 to reunite families that had been divided during the Civil War. And so essentially Mother's Day is a day in which a mother's role in the unity of the family is celebrated. That's really what is being celebrated, is the mother's role in the unity of the family and the the importance of it and the need for it. And so this morning, we're going to look at Mark 14, verses 1 through 11, and look at a woman whose loving worship of Christ is celebrated by him, that that her worship alone is celebrated by Christ. So let's go ahead this morning. We're going to actually stand as we read this passage together. That's going to be out of Mark chapter 14. The last couple weeks we haven't stood just because of the length of text that we've been in in Samuel and 1 Samuel. But this morning we're going to be reading this together. So let's stand together, verses 1 through 11. If you don't have a Bible, you can actually feel free to grab one in the back. If you don't own a Bible, you can take one of those, take it home with you. Um, You can also see it up on the screens this morning. And this is what it says. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table... A woman with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in the memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And they heard it. They were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Lord God, this morning as we look at your text together, as we look at your word together, may we just be reminded of what it means to be a person of true worship. God, may this woman be an example to us this morning. An example of of a worship that is 
selfless and sacrificial. Lord, we pray for your spirit to move powerfully amongst us this morning. We pray that it would be your spirit who goes before your word, penetrating into our hearts. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. Speak through me, move me aside. May it be you bringing forth your word. Father, may we be refreshed and encouraged and challenged this morning. Strike down pride within us, Lord. Strike down areas of rebellion in us. And God, I pray that you would speak to us and we might be transformed by the power of your spirit and the power of your word. And we ask this in your name. Amen. True worship proclaims Christ's truth as we selflessly love and honor Him with every part of our lives. The heart of this passage, true worship proclaims Christ's truth as we selflessly love and honor Him with every part of our lives. This passage is about worship. And God is using this woman to bring us a picture of worship. In our study in 1 Samuel, we've seen Saul's blindness and the effects of walking in it, if you'll remember back the past few weeks. In fact, repeatedly, Jonathan actually confronted Saul with the truth, leading to Saul's kind of murderous outbursts. If you recall, he was throwing spears at both David and Jonathan. He got angry. His desire was to kill. And there was this blindness that had overcome Saul because of his rebellion against God. And as Jonathan brought forth the truth, as he asked the question, what has David done? Why are you trying to kill him? Saul throws a spear at Jonathan, his own son, because he's being confronted with that truth. Well, the truth is that the gospel of Christ, the truth of Christ exposes our spiritual blindness, and it exposes our pride, and it it, it exposes our sin nature. And when confronted with Christ's truth, our, our flesh often opposes Christ and seeks to defend and protect itself. Think about those times in your own life where you've been confronted with the truth, and everything inside of you just wants to defend yourself, Right? The gospel, the truth, has a way of exposing our hearts. Well, this is actually clearly seen in verse 1, which says, It was now two days before Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. Now, because of the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees, they had refused to acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. And the Passover was established to remember God's deliverance of the Israelites from the bondage of Egypt. And it reminded the people of the blessing of the promised land and the coming Messiah who would restore God's people. And so during this time, 
hundreds of thousands, and some scholars actually say millions of Jews would have come to Jerusalem for the celebration of Passover. The city was flooded. And when you look at the city, when you think of Jerusalem, Jerusalem is not that big. It's not what we think of when we look, think of cities here in America. We think of San Francisco or Oakland or Los Angeles or New York, San Jose. Jerusalem is small. And there are millions of people, hundreds of thousands, that are coming to this area And the the Pharisees, they want to kill Jesus because of their hard-heartedness. Reminds us a little bit of Saul. That when we're rebellion, it it, it doesn't lead to life, it leads to death. And so the religious leaders knew the popularity of Jesus among the people. And while they didn't question their own desire to murder Jesus, they were afraid of the people and their response. They were willing to kill Jesus, but they were afraid of the people. And so in verse 2 it says, For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. You see, the religious leaders were more concerned with the people's response than what was pleasing to God. It's one of the reasons the Scriptures tell us that the fear of man is a snare. When we're more worried about what will go on with people and how people are responding and not with what is pleasing to God, it's a snare that leads to death, not to righteousness, not to life. And so we know from John 12 that the woman mentioned here is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And Mark doesn't tell us because at the heart of that, it's really not important who the person is. Mark wants us to see this picture of this beautiful worship. And so Mark, in essence, he he begins to compare the enemies of Christ to this loving woman. And so in verse 3 he says, And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now the custom during this time was that during, uh, during a, a, a visit or a, a having a dinner guest, there would be a dab of perfume that was placed on the forehead of the dinner guest as a sign of honor. And so this woman comes to Jesus and she breaks the entire vial over his head. Now, she didn't walk in. It wasn't like a smelling salt situation where she smacks him upside the head with a, a, you know, this jar and then breaks it. Uh, as Kelly and I were talking earlier, I wanted to be clear about that because you want to make sure that he, she didn't walk in and go, oh, bam, I'm honoring you, right? That's, that's the, uh, the key. But she takes this and she breaks this jar over his head and, and this pure nard comes over him. The amazing part about this is that this nard was taken from a plant in India. And the, the fact that it's called pure nard is, means that it was not diluted at all. It was not diluted with water. So let me give you kind of a comparison there for a minute. Perfume is 20 to 40% aromatic compounds. Okay? 
Parfume, I never knew there were this many, by the way. Parfume is 10 to 30% aromatic compounds. My favorite, eau de toilette, um, 3 to 8%. And then eau de froche is 1 to 3%. So even the strongest perfumes that we have today, the strongest are 40%. So this was 100% undiluted. Now this nard was also used in the embalming process and was extremely expensive. In fact, verse 5 tells us this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. Now denarii was equal to a day's wage. So if you think about that, this alabaster flask of oil was worth roughly a year's salary. A year's wages, five-sixths of a year's wages. So imagine what you make right now from January to October, and that's what it cost. And that's what she spent. Now, this was a tremendous act of love and worship towards Jesus. She models this aspect of being willing to sacrifice everything for him. Her life was about wholeheartedly loving and honoring Christ. And when our lives are about wholeheartedly and honoring Christ, wholeheartedly loving Him and honoring Him, this is the essence of true worship. You see, genuine love for Christ will lead to sacrificial worship of Christ. However, notice how those present respond to this woman's sacrificial love. It's important to understand that this response is not primarily from unbelievers, but it's actually from the believers in the room. So it's not unbelievers who are looking at her saying, hey, this is crazy. It's actually from believers. And so what we see here first is the common response of others towards wholehearted love and sacrificial worship of Christ. You're being extreme. You're being extreme. Notice what verse 4 and 5 says. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold and given to the poor. And they scolded her. This didn't produce in them just a, hey, are you sure you wanted to do that? This produced in them a frustration, an anger. They were indignant. At the heart of that indignation is you're being irresponsible and impractical. The truth is, is that this is a response that's not just common then, but it can be a common response today. This woman understood the power of Christ's grace, the fact that Jesus came to die for the sins of mankind. Taking God's wrath meant for us and overcoming the death sentence of our sin through His resurrection. And yet, she worshipped Jesus wholeheartedly, sacrificially, and publicly. Not just in private. And yet, she was still misunderstood by the followers of Christ. Her worship was extravagant, and there was a personal cost to serving Him. When we serve Christ, 
there's going to be a personal cost. And that cost isn't always financial, but it's probably going to cost us. There's an old saying that coming to Christ costs you nothing, but following Christ costs you everything. If we're going to follow Christ, it costs us. And she understood that. Mark 8, 35-37 affirms this when it says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? We have to be willing to, to, to put off what is it that, that other people's opinions are about our devotion to Christ. And as Christians, we need to be encouraging one another to walk in that level of devotion. I think there are times when safety becomes the number one goal. As families, we can look out and we can say, well, gosh, this puts my child in harm way. If I go to a mission field where God is calling me into a communist country, into a country which is blocked, am I prohibited because the safety of my family. The most unsafe place to be is outside of the will of God. The safest place to be is inside of it. And so if God calls us to go, we need to be willing to go. I can't tell you the number of Christians I've heard periodically who who have shared with me at different times missionaries that I know who are friends or who I've supported in the past, who have gone into countries with their families that are dangerous countries. And they've come to me and said, don't you think that's the most irresponsible thing? I'm like, no, I don't. The most responsible thing a person can do is walk with Christ. Our families can't be our idols. Our safety can't be our idol. What we can be assured of is that as we walk with him, it needs to be his voice that we're following, not the voice of men, not the voice of humanity. David Guzik puts it this way, he said, they criticized her sharply. It's easy to criticize those who show more love to Jesus than we do. We sometimes want to define a fanatic as someone who's more devoted to Jesus than we are. Several years back, Francis Chan wrote a book called Crazy Love. It was a book about basically getting rid of everything for following Christ. I'll tell you, I think it was one of the greatest challenges that the church needed to wake up out of its stupor in America that's based in somewhat of this kind of safe subculture. But Chan took a lot of criticism. And he took criticism because as he expressed the desire to say, I want to sell the things that are mine. I want to go and I want to focus and live as a missionary. And I want to downsize and start serving the Lord in ways in his life that he felt were more meaningful. 
People were convicted by that. It was always interesting. The first response was, well, God doesn't want me to sell everything. It's okay if God doesn't want you to sell everything at that time. But the issue is not about you. The issue is about each of us listening and following Christ. And so if the Lord so leads, we need to follow. J.C. Ryle adds, the spirit of these narrow-minded fault finders is unhappily only too common. Their followers and successors are to be found in every part of Christ's visible church. If a man devotes his time, money, and affections to the pursuit of worldly things, they do not blame him. If he gives himself up to the service of money, pleasure, or politics, they find no fault. But if the same man devotes himself and all that he has to Christ, they can scarcely find words to express their sense of his folly. He's beside himself. He's out of his mind. He's a fanatic. In short, they regard it as a waste. If a man once understands the sinfulness of sin and the mercy of Christ in dying for him, he will never think anything too good or too costly to give to Christ. He will fear wasting time, talents, money, affections on the things of this world. He will fear going into extremes about business, money, politics, or pleasure. But he will not be afraid of doing too much for Christ. So how does Jesus respond then? These others that are with him, they respond by telling her that she's been too extreme in essence. But notice Jesus' response in verse 6. He says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Jesus' response to true worship, you've done well and beautifully. You've done well and beautifully. That word there in Greek for, for beautiful or for good is this word huge, and it means to do well, but it carries with it a sense of doing well, not only from a moral sense, but from a lovely sense. It carries with it the idea that this is done, you've done a good job, but that it's pleasing in my sight. See, Jesus wants us to understand in these moments that when we are submitted to him, he is well pleased. Moms, You may look at your children and you may say, they're not what I want them to be completely. You may say, gosh, they don't listen to me all the time. I don't feel like they respect me. I don't know whether it's going on with them. And those that may have grown children may look and go, some of them are walking with the Lord and others are not, and I don't know what to do. And did I fail them? Be encouraged by this. Christ wants us to know that if we're submitted to him, What we're offering up is a pleasing sacrifice. When we are laying down our life in worship for him, we can be free of all those other things, knowing that God is the one who's at work, that he's doing his work in their lives. Because the worship that is pleasing is one that is submitted to him completely. Malachi 3, 1, 3 through 4 says this. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. 
Behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord through who? Jesus, the Messiah, the messenger. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. What does God desire of us? He desires of a submitted life, a life that is surrendered to him, that is seeking him, that's not concerned with what man says, but is concerned with what he says, that's not concerned with the impressions of man, but is concerned with the truth of Christ. Those are radically different. See, the impressions of man always change, don't they? They can never be satisfied. But the truth of Christ remains the same. And the beauty of that is that we can know, we can know that when we are saying, God, I will go where you want me to go, I will be who you want me to be, everything I have is yours, that it is a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. And it is through Christ and his righteousness that these sacrifices are brought. Now Jesus goes on to explain to this woman why she's done a beautiful thing. And what we see here are three characteristics of true worship. It's not all of them, but it's three that he points out. And this woman demonstrates Verse 7, it says, For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. So the first characteristic is faithfully serving Christ as our number one priority. Faithfully serving Christ as our number one priority. Galatians 6, 6 through 7 says, Let the one who is taught the word share all good deeds with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. See, serving Christ as our number one priority requires us to discern God's voice and will. And we can discern it through the scriptures. We're not to be deceived. God's not mocked. He knows when he's not the number one priority. We may feel like, hey, I I can just get around on this one. But God knows our heart. What's vying for the attention in your own heart? Hebrews 5, 13 through 14 says, For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. The word of God, his truth, is what actually trains us to be able to discern the will of God. It's one of the reasons that we need to be in the the Word of God is so that we might know His will and we might be able to discern what is right. If we're going to serve Christ as our number one priority, we need to be people of the Word. People of the truth. She understood that she only had Jesus for the short period of time. And she wanted to invest everything she had in him. 
those of us at the very most will live to be 103 years. Most of us will live 40 years less than that. We have a short little time to invest in Jesus. Yes, there will be a day when we stand before Jesus. For those who have repented and believed on him for salvation, there will be a day that we stand before him and get to worship him forever. But in this life, we have a short time. Is he our priority? Is serving him our priority? Are your priorities aligned with Christ in his word? Are you seeking the comfort and security of this life? Or are you seeking the comfort and security of Christ? Have you adopted American values as biblical truth? Are you discerning God's voice? Are your decisions shaped by Him and His will or by your preference? Are the decisions you're making being governed by what His Word says and by the sufficiency of who He is, or are your decisions being made by what you would prefer to do? The second characteristic that we see here is in verse 8, and it says, She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. It's sacrificially giving our best to Christ in everything, including but not limited time, talents, and resources. It's sacrificially giving our best to Christ in everything. Alan Carr points out this. He says, we cannot do everything, but we must learn to take what we have and do what we can with it. You can't evangelize the whole world, but you can tell one person at a time about Jesus. You can't feed every starving person in the world, but you can feed some. You can't help everybody, but you can help some people. You can't do it all, but you can take what you have and use it for the glory of God. That is all God asks of you. Do what you can. You can't do it all, but there are some things you can do. Pray, witness, work, give, be faithful, read your Bible, support the church, help your neighbor, teach your Sunday school class, do what you can. By the way, you won't be able to do the things you do now forever, but you can teach others how to do it so they can step in when you can't. It's sacrificially giving the best of what we have. In my marriage, Elisa gives sacrificially in lots of ways. But one specific way that is visible every single Sunday is that I come here early and for the last 20 years, She's come by herself with our kids. That would make it 17 years, since our kids are oldest is 17. She gets them ready by herself on Sunday mornings, gets them in the house, and gets them out here. And she's a single mom on Sunday morning because she sacrifices so that I can walk in the giftings and callings that God has given me as well. That's a form of sacrificial Worship before the Lord. There are others of you that do the same. 
that are coming along and sacrifice so that your spouse can walk in those callings, both male and female can walk in those callings. The things that the Lord is leading for. Psalm 116, 12 through 17 says this, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? Listen to what he says. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call in the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. You have freed me. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. Out of gratefulness, we respond. Out of gratitude, we respond to Christ by giving him ourself. We give him everything. Are we sacrificing? Remember, true worship has a cost. Are we sacrificing to help our spouse be the servant of Christ that they are called to be? Are we sacrificing to to help our children be the servants of Christ that they're supposed to be? Are we sacrificing so that one another might be the servants of Christ that they are called to be? Are we sacrificing so that his church might be the servants of Christ that we are called to be? And so for us, that question has to be asked. Am I currently sacrificing and giving my best to God? Am I sacrificing to allow God to use my gifts or other gifts without regret in ways that are not my preference? Am I sacrificing my desires and my comforts and my security in giving to Him? That brings us to our third characteristic. Verse 9 says, And truly I say to you, whenever, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Continually proclaiming the truth and power of the gospel through our lives. A characteristic of True worship is continually proclaiming the truth and power of the gospel through our lives. Notice that the story of this woman's worship continues today. Jesus still honors this woman. That's pretty awesome. I don't think this woman ever thought for a moment. In fact, I can be assured that she had no idea that that act was going to be told 2,000 years later as an example of what it means to worship God. And God honored his promise that wherever the gospel was proclaimed, the story of this woman would be told. She was held in high esteem Why? Because there was this continuance. And what's being pointed out here is that our lives are to be continually proclaiming the truth of Christ. You may feel like it was a waste, but God remembers and will reward accordingly. 
You may do something and sacrifice, and the person that you sacrifice may never notice. They may never know. They may notice completely and never say thank you. They may notice and actually chuck it away. But God remembers and rewards accordingly. When we live for Christ, God has not forgotten it. There may be some of you that have said, I've been on my knees praying for a specific person and their hearts have not been changed. That may be a child, that may be a friend. It's not a waste. God's still working. God will reward your faithfulness. And he's working out his purposes. It's not a waste. True worship will not be forgotten. You may feel like it was a waste, but you have to remember that it's not about man's response, it's about God's response. And God called this a beautiful thing. Moms and each of us need to rest in this peace that when we are faithful to God, even though we may not see the results, it is not a wasted thing. Years ago, Lisa and I had a mother that was in our, woman that was in our birthing class when we were in birthing class for Ashley before we figured out that for us, birthing classes didn't really help a whole lot. Everything went out the window when the baby started to come. But we met this woman, and she was in some distress. The baby had twisted and turned, and there were some problems. We got to know her really well, and we began praying for her, for her salvation. And after the birthing classes were done, we we went our, our separate ways, and I think early on in that first year, we had run across her in one place. And I remember distinctly about 2004, I, Lisa and I talked about it. I said, I'm kind of just done praying for her. Like, I think our time is done praying for her. We've prayed a lot, and, you know, like we don't ever see her again, and she's off the radar for us. It's maybe somebody else will pick up that mantle. That same week, after praying for her, after not having seen her in three years, we run into her in a store. And it was like, oh, okay, Lord, you want us to pray for her. And I can remember thinking, this just feels like such a waste. It feels like such a waste. Like, I've got more emotional capital, I can't pray for somebody. I mean, it was ridiculous. It was just sheer laziness, right? Apathy, frustration, like... Lord, do something, just fish or cut bait, like, and, and, and the ridiculousness of that in my own heart of like, fish or cut bait on this, like, Lord, do it now or have me stop doing this, the selfishness in that. But I remember being compelled and we started praying for her again. In 2005, she put her kids in a preschool that our kids were in, unbeknownst to us. And uh, she started working with one of the teachers in the preschool as a teacher took an interest in her and the teacher started sharing the gospel with her. 
this lady came to Christ. And in February of 2006, through only circumstances that could be God-ordained, I got the opportunity to baptize her. The amazing part about that is what I felt like was a waste. God was going through and he was going, listen, who are you trusting, yourself or me? My purposes are so bigger than yours. Our approval is not in the things of man or in this world. Our approval comes from Christ. And we need to rest in the fact that when we are submitted to Christ, we need to stop looking at the other pieces and go, thank you, Lord, this is a beautiful thing. Are you content waiting for God's reward? Or do you become frustrated? Do you take breaks or vacations for God and justify them? Spend enough time in the Word already, Lord. I don't need to do that today. Do you go on vacation and take a vacation from God? Does your life consistently proclaim the gospel? Those are questions that we need to ask. And so this brings us then to verses 10 through 11. The beauty of this woman's worship contrasted by the betrayal of Judas when it says, Then Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now here is the important truth regarding our worship. Loving Christ wholeheartedly moves us to genuinely worship him and prevents us from betraying him in our lives. We know from the Gospel of John and John 12 that Judas was already stealing from the treasury. Judas was a man who was a hypocrite that was on one hand saying that he was worshiping God, on the other hand, he was worshiping the world. Another way that we could put this is that lacking love for Christ as evidenced by worshiping the things of this world, will lead us to betray Christ and his truth. Let me say that again. Lacking love for Christ as evidenced by worshiping the things of this world will lead us to betray Christ and his truth with our lives. You see, Mark places the story of Mary's tremendous love and worship in contrast to the enemies of Christ. In essence, he's given us a picture of the religious worshiper, the religious leaders, the true worshiper, the woman, Mary, and the hypocritical worshiper, Judas. So the question for us this morning is this. Is Jesus enough if you're mothering right now, whether it's spiritually or biologically, or you have adopted children, whatever role it is that you take as a mother, it could be fostering kids. In the face of mothering your children, is Jesus enough? Is your submission to Jesus enough even when the results aren't bearing the way that you want them to?
even when you feel like you have nothing left to give? Men, that's a question for us too. Is Jesus enough? And is he enough to satisfy us? Is he really all we desire to worship? Because that's the question that's before us this morning. A question that is, is Jesus enough? And is he all that we desire to worship? May that be our prayer this week. That we have hearts that desire to worship Jesus alone. And be willing to live a life that is surrendered to him, knowing that his grace costs us nothing, but walking with him will cost us everything. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that your grace has come to us. Lord, I pray that we would be proclaimers of your truth and proclaimers of your glory. And we would be worshipers, true worshipers of you as this woman was. God, may we look at the things that are valuable in this life and freely let them go if you call us to do so. May may we be people who rest knowing That it's not about man's impressions or man's thoughts or ideas. But it's about your response. And Father, when we are surrendered to you, may we rejoice in the fact that you call this a beautiful thing. Father, may we be a people who rejoice today over your grace May we be a people who are challenged to walk in it, to lay aside those things that are competing for your attention, for your number one priority. And may we submit those things to you now. And we ask this in your name. Amen.